All right, welcome to Equipping Hour. I'll uh, open us in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get started. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and, again, work through uh, the doctrine of eternal security and what it means for us. And we ask that you would help us uh, understand what you have revealed, that it might benefit us in the ways that you intend. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you're looking at the uh, note sheet here this morning, the title of this series we're covering last week, this week, and next week is Holding On to Eternal Security. Is your eternal security something that is uh, securely held onto by God, or is it something that you hold onto? And the answer to that, as we looked at last week, is yes. Uh, God preserves his saints, and God's saints persevere. Right? There is a human side to this. There is the divine side of this. And um, this was generated for us in our discussion from the statement of Romans 11 and verse 20. Uh, speaking of Jews who were broken off for their unbelief, you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. And that little if statement is troubling for us who have uh, read Romans 8 and we've sort of locked ourselves into the very secure position of believers from Romans 8. We're uncondemnable, unseparatable. And our, our status as forgiven sinners means that in God's economy, those, all those who have been uh, foreknown, foreloved, foreknown, predestined, um, called, justified, glorified. We saw that unbreakable chain of salvation. Why then in just three chapters later do we have this if statement that you won't be cut off except that you might be cut off if you fail to believe? Uh, you won't be cut off from his kindness if you stay in his kindness. Uh, what, how do these things work together? And so Again, the, the real answer to the question, how do eternal security, commands to persevere, and warnings against falling away, how do they work together in my Bible? And, and the answer is they do work together. Um, and the, the longer answer, uh, we worked through letter A last time. All three are in the Bible. We looked at the doctrine of eternal security. We looked at uh, passage after passage of encouragements to persevere, and then we looked at warnings against falling away. Uh, these are not obscure passages hidden in the far corners of your Bible that never uh, get opened. These are all over the Scriptures, all three of these doctrines. And so uh, they're holding hands together in our Bibles. They're not arguing with each other in our Bibles the way sometimes we like to do. I have my favorite doctrine. You have your favorite doctrine. The more I hear you talk about that biblical doctrine, which seems opposed to my favorite biblical doctrine, we fight about it and we polarize each other uh, over that thing. These passages aren't doing that with each other. These passages love each other. They work together in God's economy. So all three are in the Bible. That's what we looked at last week. And what we're going to look at this morning, in your, if you're looking at the outline on page one, we're looking at letters B, C, and D. Uh, letter B, security, eternal security, belongs to genuine believers. Right? Genuine is the key word there. Security belongs to genuine believers. Security does not belong to professing believers. That is, I profess to be a Christian does not get you into heaven. 
right? If you made a profession of faith at some point in your life, that is not your ticket into heaven. A mere statement about loyalty to Jesus at one point in your life is not the same thing as regeneration, new birth that brings about eternal life from the heart and works its way out in a life and endures. Letter C, genuine belief inevitably results in obedience. Genuine belief inevitably results in obedience. So if you have someone who has a profession of faith but never obeys Christ, you have a problem there. A mere profession doesn't get you into heaven, but regeneration does, and regeneration always produces fruit um, of some sort, some evidence that spiritual life is on the inside. Now, that notion runs contrary to what I was taught in Bible college. Uh, what I was taught at, at a otherwise uh, really pretty, very good Bible college, uh, unnamed in the Midwest, in uh, downtown Chicago, um, was the, the, the very heinous combination of the doctrine of eternal security on one hand and anti-lordship on the other. Uh, my college had uh, taken aim in the Bible department against John MacArthur, specifically, and against the notion that um, when you come to Jesus, you surrender to him as Lord. Uh, in, in, in the minds of my Bible professors, that was a doctrine of works and legalism and actually opposed the gospel. Uh, I had Bible professors say that John MacArthur was a heretic preaching a false gospel for insisting that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. Um, and, and the way they reasoned that out is, um, if you make the demand that a Christian, a genuine Christian, has to love Jesus then you're imposing works onto the gospel. And we all know that the gospel comes by faith. So to demand that someone love Christ is adding a work to salvation. That's a false gospel. Therefore, he's a heretic. That was the argument. Um, I, I was taught and believed that repentance had no part of salvation. Repentance had no part of salvation. Why? Because turning from idols to God is a work. Turning from sin to Christ is a work. And works have no part of salvation. Uh, so that was a pretty radical anti-lordship view that had its roots in the early 80s at Dallas Theological Seminary where many of my Bible professors had been taught, where they had been discipled, and that's what they taught us in Bible college. So there were some things for me to unlearn in that, but I think that is the worst combination of doctrines, to believe in eternal security, once saved, always saved, and no lordship, right? Because it, it means that, hey, I made a profession of faith when I was five. I signed the card, I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I raised my hand, I threw the pine cone in the fire, whatever it was that was my, this, man, I, I'm a Christian. We're not in the Bible Belt. I know some of that's foreign. You're like, throw a pine cone in the fire, I never heard of that. That was like the, the nighttime campfire, uh, hear a great message, hey, does anybody want to be a Christian after what you just heard? Yeah, if you want to be a Christian tonight, just take that pine cone and throw it in the fire. It was like a visible demonstration of loyalty to Christ. Listen, you make that profession of faith, and then you're taught, once saved, always saved. And guess what? doesn't matter how you live. And so an unregenerate person who makes a profession of loyalty to Christ as a one-time act is given this guarantee of eternal life. And listen, you, you walk around the Bible Belt today and you ask people, hey, tell me um, so-and-so who doesn't go to church, doesn't read his Bible, doesn't love Christ, totally lives for the things of the world and temporal mindset, uh, you know, 
doesn't care about the things of the Lord. Um, you ask so-and-so, how does someone get to heaven? Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Rattles it off that quick. It's like the answer in the Bible, though, and other places. And it's this just sort of blanket security, security blanket. I did not intend to say that. It's this blanket of eternal security over a life not surrendered to Christ. There is nothing more dangerous than that combination. Because you just consign people to feeling really happy about, I must be okay with God because Jesus died for my sins on their way to hell. And so, um, genuine belief inevitably results in obedience or fruit. Letter D, false profession will eventually be manifested. False profession will eventually be manifested. Listen, God knows who are His. God knows who are His. And whether it's time and trials in this life, whether it's the church discipline process of Matthew 18 in this life, or whether it's the stripping away of everything external in the next Every motive, every careless word, every deed recorded, all will be known. False professions will be revealed. They'll be shown for what people are. Letter E, warnings serve God's purposes and our well-being. Some people have said, well, listen, if there's eternal security, then why are there warnings in the Bible about falling away? Since there are warnings, then the doctrine of eternal security must be unbiblical. Okay? But the Bible has doc- the doctrine of eternal security, and the Bible has warnings. Um, unless we're going to tell our Bible it argues with itself, and if it does that, we close it and walk away, and we have no business with this book, right? God does not lie, um, then somehow they agree. And I think the agreement between eternal security as a doctrine and warnings against falling away is simply that God has his purposes for those warnings. And I, and I think we can ferret those out as we look at them together. Uh, there are warnings for unbelievers, There are warnings for pretenders in the church, and there are purposes of those warnings for tender-hearted believers to cling to Christ. Um, And and so we'll look at those purposes together. Letter F, in putting all this together, is that eternal security and assurance of salvation are not the same. You can be eternally secure, but not assured of your salvation. You can also be assured of your salvation and not be saved. Right? So we don't want to confuse those two things. Eternal security is objective, outside of you, Fort Knox, locked up, unbreakable chain of salvation from before time began to eternity future. God knows who are his. And he brings about everything they need to get them from point A to point B. And on the other side, um, assurance of salvation is that subjective impression of our standing with God. Uh, it's what we think about it, how we feel about it, and it, it, ha- it, it comes and goes. Eternal security never changes. Assurance of salvation is actually tied to how well are we tracking with God through Christ, dependent on the Holy Spirit, in obedient living towards Him. Uh, a Christian who is living in unbroken patterns of sin has no right to assurance. And the last thing you want to do is assure a disobedient Christian, hey, you're okay, doctrine of eternal security. Just go read Romans 8. Um, What you need to encourage a a believer in unbroken patterns of sin is repent. Have you read the warning passages? You don't have a right to assurance. Uh, That's what they're there for. All right, letter G, faith is the key to, to perseverance. That's what we'll wrap up this whole discussion with next week.
Faith is the key to perseverance. Uh, Simple, humble, clinging to Christ. Genuine, real, Holy Spirit produced, word of God dependent faith. And you know what that faith will do? It'll yield to God in terms of truth and it will yield to God in terms of a life, right? Obedience and faith should never be opposed uh, as if, oh yeah, I have a faith, um, but I don't obey. What does James say? No, I'll show you my faith by what I do, right? That's not a justification reality. That's not Romans 4, uh, but James 2. How can, on a horizontal level, a genuine faith be seen? Because that faith yields a life in humble submission to Christ that just says, I trust you, I trust your ways, I'll do whatever you say. Uh, Obedience is the expression of genuine faith. So the key to faith, um, or the key to perseverance, is that kind of humble faith that just trusts in God's word, trusts in God's ways. So, And I said this last week, I want to say it again, um, bottom of page one, a thought for the concerned heart. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I love Christ, And I recognize the tendency in my heart to sin. And I'm afraid that I I won't love him someday. (laughs) I I, I think that that tender-hearted believer who is scared by the warnings because he or she doesn't want to fall away from Christ (laughs) um, is probably not the one uh, who is not eternally secure. In other words, if you're worried or concerned that God won't keep you because you're aware of your sin. Listen, God saved you when you were at your worst. And you can never out-sin His grace. What's at stake in these warning passages is not, Christian, did you sin this week? Your salvation's in jeopardy. But professing Christian, if you're harboring unchecked, unrepentant patterns of sin you might be on the road to apostasy. And the one who says, I don't want to fall away from Christ, isn't in that category. Unchecked, unbroken patterns of sin put you on a path of actually doubting Christ. And before we get into letters B, C, and D, which is where we're going today, I I just want to paint a picture of how this happens, where unchecked patterns of sin lead to apostasy. So if you're in a regular pattern of of uh, recognizing your sin before the Lord, feeling conviction, feeling the sting of conscience, uh, being soft-hearted when somebody approaches you and helps you see a blind spot. You know, somebody Galatians 6-1s you, right? With gentleness comes to you and, and, and helps extricate you from some pattern of sin or something you don't see because they love you. You're like, oh, thank you. That's good. What happens when you say one day, you know what, fighting sin's hard. I'm tired. I mean, the, the Christian life, a battle, an athletic competition. I mean, when do I just get to rest? Right? Have you ever thought that? And, and in one sense, the Christian life is a Sabbath rest in anticipation of another rest, right? You rested from dead works coming to Christ, and you're still in that rest from dead works. But you're also in a fight. And you're in a fight that won't end in this life. And, and if you get discouraged with, man, the, the struggle, I just don't want to struggle anymore, it would just be so much easier to not confess this time. I mean, go through the whole motions of identifying my sin, calling it what God calls it, uh, walking through the gospel and making plans for repentance and putting off these things and, and putting in their place 
things that are pleasing to God. That's just lots of hard work. At this time, I'm just not going to do that. And you put a hard layer over your heart. Have you felt your heart get hard when you do that? And now I don't want to pray. Why don't I want to pray? Well, because sin's in the way. And if I'm going to go to the Lord in, in sincere, heartfelt prayer, well, the first thing I'm going to have to do is confess and repent again. And I just said, that's hard and I want rest. By the way, it's a lie of your flesh. You're never actually going to find the rest. You're only going to find slavery and death. But, but we're tempted to do that and we just cover over our soft-hearted sensitivity towards sin and we sear our conscience. And you know what happens when you do that? You are no longer sensitive in the ways you were to things that are shameful and displeasing to your Savior. You may even start making plans to sin. And then you don't want to confess that either. And the heart just gets harder and harder. And then you start to think, wait a second, does this gospel thing really work? And you start to doubt the power of the word of God. You start to doubt the power of the gospel. You said, look, I spent 10 years of my life, sin, confess, repent, preach the gospel to myself, sin, preach the gospel to myself, repent, confess, ah, people addressing sin in my life. and ah, Been there, done that. And you start to say, well, gospel doesn't have power over my sin. Confession doesn't actually work. Soft-heartedness is overrated. That is the highway to apostasy. Where sin, given its room, now produces doubt, which invites in more sin, more hardness, more doubt, and eventually... And, and in not very much time, you get to a place you never thought you would be. Ah, oh, the gospel. Ah, oh, the Bible. Ah, oh, as people just take themselves too seriously. The place is legalistic. And you walk. You run away from the things you held precious. Listen, apostasy is real. And, and there are checks to that available to us in what we're studying today. So uh, let's put our seatbelt on. Let's look at some more passages. And we're going to pick up with letter B. Security belongs to genuine believers. Security belongs to genuine believers. <clears throat> I want you to turn to John chapter 8. And to me, this is a fascinating passage. Because it seems so promising. We're watching Jesus' earthly ministry... And he's got enemies, but he's also got followers. And, and there are masses of crowds following him. And, and it's hard to sort out, why are these people following him? Uh, some saw him do miracles and they said, ooh, um, how about we just hold an election right here? Uh, so the people came seeking to seize him by force and make him king. What was Jesus' response in, in John 6? So he withdrew again alone to the mountain by himself. In other words, Jesus didn't give in to the waves of popularity that were surrounding his ministry. And the gospel of John is the gospel of belief, right? Uh, he, he writes in John 20, 31, I've written these things to you so that you may believe and by believing you have eternal life. That's great when the Bible writer tells us, here's the theme of my book. <laughs> That's John 20, 31. 
It is the gospel of belief. And so if you trace the word belief through the gospel of John, you get some really interesting things. And John 8 is a great picture of this. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, verse 28, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Right? These, are, these are hard things Jesus is teaching. He's the only way. I'm going to the cross. My Father uh, is God. I'm God. You know, these are, these are um, controversial things that Jesus is teaching. And notice verse 30. And he, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Right? And we read that and we go, Man, I wish I could preach the gospel like Jesus did. I mean, he just spoke. He spoke these things, John 8 things, and people came to believe in him. Wow, that's successful. Keep reading. Next verse. So Jesus was saying, by the way, there's a big, in my Bible, there's a big uh, kind of, this is a new topic heading. (laughs) Uh, Just erase that. And read verse 30 and then verse 31 back to back. Verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. And he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Then you'll know the truth. Wait, I thought they were believers. I thought they were believers in verse 30. Yeah, they were believers in the sense that they were agreeable with what Jesus was saying. And listen, there are a lot of things Jesus said that you come to terms with and go, man, that sounds great. John 6, free lunch. (laughs) Make him king. And then he says, you have no part of me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? Uh, And people started leaving. Here in John 8, um, Jesus is talking about uh, remarkable um, realities. He's the light of the world. You come to me, you won't have darkness anymore. I am truth, I am light, I am life. But now he's speaking to those who had believed him, and he identifies them as not his disciples. And it first comes with an if statement, like that if statement we looked at in Romans 11. Um, How do you know if you're my disciples? If you continue in my word. In other words, perseverance identifies a true disciple. Regeneration brings eternal life that never ends. True disciples persevere. So this if statement is a little troubling. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Um, That sounds like a great statement. Come to Jesus, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. What is the corollary to that? You're slaves. Who wants to be told that they're enslaved? No, I'm living my life the way I want. You're trying to sell me some new deal, and and you're telling me that I'm enslaved? Pfft. Watch me say no. I'm no slave. And Jesus describes their slavery in John 8. They said, verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. What? <laughs> who have the Jews and when have the Jews, who have the Jews not been enslaved to? Right? Go back to Egypt. Right? The, 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 then, then you got the cycle of judges where they were oppressed by every nation around the block. Uh, There was a short golden era of world supremacy as the world power in the golden age of Saul, David, Solomon, and then the divided kingdom, and then the oppression of the nations, and then followed by the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and then currently the Romans. (laughs) What do you mean you haven't been enslaved to anybody? Seems like you've always been enslaved. 
What do you mean we'll be free? This was offensive. Truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Oh, we're not talking geopolitics. You're talking about my personal enslavement to my sins and my personal idolatries. That's even more offensive. Verse 36, if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. Wait, in verse 30, they were just credited with belief in Jesus. And here, Jesus is saying, my word has no place in you, and that's why you're trying to kill me. Verse 39, they answered and said, oh, verse 38, I speak the things that I've seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Oh, you mean Abraham? Jesus wasn't talking about father Abraham. They said, Abraham's our father, and Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham, but as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Another shocking statement. The Jews in the first century would not have claimed the fatherhood of God in a personal way like that. But they're in this one-upmanship in this conversation with Jesus. And so they throw out something they don't even believe, much less would say, in order to try to win the argument. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. And Jesus here drops the card of total depravity, specifically related to inability. These unbelievers who were called believing in Jesus back in verse 30, don't actually have the spiritual capacity for the kind of faith that Jesus demands. And then verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So, you know, in the span of 13 verses, we just went from, hey, they believe the gospel to they're Satan's children and they want to kill the Messiah. What does that tell you about the word belief in the gospel of John, right? The gospel of belief. It means John is willing to use the word belief, believer, believe in Jesus to describe a number of different kinds of people, some of whom are regenerate and some of whom have Satan as their dad still. So we just need to start with that category. Uh, Number one, when we're talking about eternal security belonging to believers, we mean eternal security belongs to genuine believers. The Bible has a category of spurious belief, phony belief, whitewashed belief, belief on the outside, but not the real deal on the inside. And we have to start with that category. Uh, Look at Luke 8. And Luke 8 details for us the parable of the soils. The sower went out to sow seeds, right? And uh, we get our word broadcasting from what this sower was doing. Uh, You reach into your pouch of seed and you cast it out broadly, indiscriminately, right? When a radio station broadcasts it, it doesn't wait for you to turn the radio on and then say, okay, beam, you know, this AM station to that car. 
No, it's just indiscriminately broadcasting, and wherever those, they're not beams, are they? They're waves. Wherever those radio waves intersect with my receiver, and I've got it tuned into the right frequency, then I can hear it. Uh, But those radio waves are going out all over the place, and they uh, are always there, but often not heard. Uh, This idea of broadcasting is helpful in terms of thinking about evangelism. How does the sower sow the seed? He reaches in, pulls out seed, and broadcasts it. And where do those seeds fall? Uh, Some on rocky soil, uh, some on the road trampled underfoot, uh, some among thorns, and some on good soil. And and just so you know, um, how do we find good soil as an evangelistic strategy? Let's go find the best soil and just take the seed and carefully put it in that good soil and work it and water it. No, you just, man, throw the seed of the gospel everywhere. Indiscriminately preach the gospel to everything that moves and you see who responds. Right? And, and so that's the picture here. The, the, the word is being broadcast. The word is the good news of the word of God. And in verse 9 of Luke 8, the disciples began questioning Jesus as to what the parable meant. Verse 10, he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables, so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. And the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. So what do we know from the very first soil? Not saved. Not saved. I don't know if we should call it soil. It's the road, right? And and the seeds just kind of bounce off the top of the hard surface, and then it's gone. Verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and we'll go, yes, successful evangelistic encounter. And they have no firm root. They, notice this, believe for a while, and in the time of temptation, fall away. There it is again, a spurious kind of belief that does not endure. It's not the regeneration kind of belief, but it is called belief. There is a, hey, I like what you're saying, I And buying what you're selling, uh, I'll take that. Uh, But it doesn't last. Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. You get the idea of a a plant that grows and it's got leaves, but no fruit. Verse 15, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. Hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. And there it is. There's only one soil in the four that represents saving faith. Three soils hear the gospel and receive it with varying degrees of reception, appreciation, even length of time. But only one of those soils represents genuine faith. So just in thinking about eternal security... Do we believe once saved, always saved? Yes. But the saved part is critical. If God saves you, no one can unsave himself. No one can unsave you. But you have to actually be saved to be secure. Uh, Genuine faith is the kind of faith that has security. All right, letter C. uh, Third kind of way we're putting these three ideas together Genuine belief inevitably results in fruit and obedience. And I've given you a lot of passages there. Let's just start at the top and go through a couple of these. 
Um, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter for me. And when we think theologically for a moment, um, we think about regeneration. Regeneration is what Jesus described with Nicodemus in John 3 as being born from above or being born of the Spirit, and you can't get to heaven without that. And if the Holy Spirit comes and makes someone alive, that person is now considered spiritual, right? You're not spiritual before that. I don't care if you go to the vortex, you know, up in Arizona and experience alien waves and all that. That's not spirituality. Spirituality is only being born again by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit actually does things in the life of a Christian in whom he dwells, right? Galatians 6 gives us the list of the what? Fruit of the Spirit, right? Those are not the things uh, produced by you and your own abilities. Those are the things that are produced in a life yielded to God by the Holy Spirit of God, permanently indwelling the people of God. Uh, So the same Holy Spirit that regenerates is the same Holy Spirit that produces fruit. And so fruit or the fruit of obedience will inevitably result from genuine belief. Why? Because the author of genuine belief is the Holy Spirit and the producer of spiritual fruit is that same person, the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 3.10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And you see the emphasis on fruit there as... um, the delineation between those that are judged and not. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? How do you know if you're a genuine Christian? Well, there's a pattern of doing God's will uh, in this life. Uh, go to Luke 6. Verse 43, there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Um, By the way, uh, some have wanted to use this Uh, passage to say there's no mixed condition. Like the only thing a Christian can produce is good fruit. See, he can't produce bad fruit. Um, The idea here is identifying what kind of a tree are we dealing with. Apple trees produce apples. You're not going to get oranges from an apple tree. It just just can't. Um, And the apple tree will inevitably produce apples. If it's not, you say, man, that's not not a good apple tree. Um, the, the point here is the, the kind of fruits that come manifest what has gone on in the inside. Uh, that a fruitful Christian life is a Christian life. Uh, a Christian life with no fruit uh, doesn't have a claim on being a genuine, a fruit of genuine faith. Luke 8.15. That's, again, the parable of the soils. We just covered that. Go to Luke 13, uh, verse 6. Uh, 
He began telling this parable, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Again, a statement of judgment for fruitlessness in a profession of faith. Look at John 10, 4. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And listen to this. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're in the category of sheep, what do you do as a pattern of life? Follow Jesus. The Bible doesn't know a category of sheep by identity, but not activity. Right? These things go together. John 12, 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. What is Jesus' stated purpose for coming for his own? To remove them from darkness. Belief in him, genuine belief in him, results in a walking in light. Uh, someone who says, oh yeah, I accepted Jesus a long time ago. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm going to heaven. Well, dude, why are you walking in darkness? Um, that is not a Christian life. It is not a life that reveals genuine faith is in place. Uh, let's move ahead to Romans chapter 6 in verse 4. Familiar verses for us. Therefore, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That is a, a connection between the surety of the fact that anyone who is identified with Christ, you've died, you're no longer yourself, you've been united with Christ in his death. This is the, the, the future tense of certainty. You also will walk with him in newness of life. There's not a category for a, a Christian who genuinely has experienced union with Christ who does not walk in newness of life. Uh, the, in the New Testament, the old man, the paleos anthropos, uh, the old man belongs to the unregenerate. The, the new man is a new life. And what is that characterized by? A walking in that newness of life, in resurrection power, under the Spirit of God. Uh, look down at Romans 6.22. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Listen, there's no mistaking. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a Christian life that is lived that is the absolute result, inevitable result of the Spirit's work in regeneration. And if it's not there, you don't have regeneration. If the Spirit is there, there is a new kind of life enslaved to God. A number of passages here from 1 John. 1 John is a, a great letter instructing uh, believers how to think through the nature of their profession, right? Uh, someone says, I love God. Yeah, but you hate your brother. Oh, 
Maybe I need to rethink that profession, right? That's the, that's the book of John. And, and just let me give you a word about 1 John. You, you've heard this. Um, I think Josh preached through 1 John. Um, and you remember the, the present tense verbs in 1 John, uh, where he says, anyone who is in him does not sin. And you're thinking, wait, I sinned on the way to church this morning. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? John's use of the present tense verbs there means an ongoing, unbroken pattern of unrepentant sin. Right? In 1 John 1 8, he says, If anyone say he has no sin, he deceives himself, and the truth, truth is not in us. That is, of course, everybody commits sins. And we've, if we confess our sins, ongoing way, 1 John 1 8 and 9, God is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The patterns in 1 John of unbroken, unrepentant sin betray a life that does not truly belong to him. So when John says, no one who is born of God sins, he means no, one's, no one who is born again continues a life in the pattern and under the dominion of sin in an unbroken fashion. That new principle of spirit life in him prevents such living. All right, letter D. False professions will eventually be manifested. False professions will eventually be manifested. We saw that in John chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, that one was pretty quick. All these, this crowd of people says, I believe in Jesus, and they all walk the aisle. And Jesus says, your father's Satan. That, that turned pretty quick. Right? That, that unbelief was manifested. Um, and it was manifested to Jesus while they were professing allegiance to him, right? He knew they wanted to kill him. He saw the heart, right? We don't always get to see the heart. Uh, you need to know that um, false profession, phony profession, is often undetectable for us. And Jesus said it would be this way. He told the parable of the wheat and the tares. In the world, you have wheat and you have tares. I got online this week and looked at pictures of wheat and tares. Um, not having grown up in a Midwestern farming community, I probably would have tried to make um, cream of wheat. I would have made cream of tares. Let's just say they, they look very much alike. And, and, I, and I always thought in the parable, yeah, they look alike because a little green thing grows out of the ground. And you go, wow, little green thing. It must be the same thing. I made this mistake uh, several years ago at Lowe's. I, I wanted to buy... The, the, the box tree, the little box tree thing with the green round leaves that stays dark green all year long and has these pretty white flowers. And I've got in the front of my house, um, in the front bay window, one of those, two of those, two empty spaces where two of them had died, and then a, then a third one. And if you've been to my house, you're wondering, who is in charge of the landscaping at that house? Because two... And those two blank spaces, I, I tried to buy another one of those, and I bought these two plants that looked identical to those in baby form. And they've, they've grown up, and they're ugly. They burn easily. Um, they, they freeze easily. So I've got brown twigs on these things, and they're all the wrong shape. It is so unsymmetrical. If you're keeping track of my feng shui in my landscaping, you just know it's all wrong. So I just bought two new replacements. They're still sitting in buckets because I haven't planted them, but they're sitting in front of the trees. They're supposed to be, and they're only this big, so they got a, I don't know, what, 10 years to catch up to the other ones. In baby form, 
They looked identical. I thought that was the idea of the wheat and the tares. You look at pictures of wheat and tares in mature adult form with fruit in the head of the stalk. Tares have this stuff that looks like wheat seed germ. You call it germ? Thank you, Sarah. Did you say that? Wheat germ? Yeah, that was helpful. I thought you just like gave me the answer. Miss Botany over there. Homeschool moms are great. They know the answers to everything. <laughs> and in the adult form, they look the same. And so when the disciples say, hey, uh, you know, are we supposed to um, you know, call down fire from heaven against false profession? And Jesus says, you know what? The angels are going to sort that out at the end. In other words, false profession is often undetectable. People come to church. They do church stuff. They run Christian organizations. They pastor churches. They use all the right words. They, they, they take very seriously uh, all, all the stuff that we hold dear, and it seems like they're in. Very sadly this week, I, I watched a YouTube video of a classmate of mine from the Master's Seminary who has wholeheartedly defected from the truth. People, and he was not the guy that I thought would walk away. And, and some people walk away from the truth and they just say, yeah, I know, I used to believe that. I'm not really interested in that anymore. Don't really care. Don't think about it. And, and this friend of mine has taken up a stance opposed to the truth publicly at the academic level, teaching in a major university against the truth. And, and he has the, the, the trump card of, yeah, been there, done that. I grew up in what he called fundamentalism. And now he can say to all these college kids, listen, you went to Sunday school? I know. All the myths about Genesis and the rest... It's garbage. That's how he's making his livelihood now. Tragedy. False profession will eventually be manifested. Um, Let's look at Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Paul writes, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Listen, at the church at Colossae, they were being infiltrated by people who had been there, done that in the Christian walk, but were now in their own minds receiving new revelations and telling them to walk according to other traditions. Listen, one of the ways that walking away from the truth is manifested in this earthly life is just compare and contrast the life and the doctrine up against the Word of God. It means we have to have discernment. It means we have to know the Word of God so that when somebody comes in and does something funny, it's noticed. That's one of the ways those things are manifested in this life. Um, Matthew 18 uh, is the process that God has given us as believers when somebody has a pattern of unrepentant sin. Um, Is the point of Matthew 18 just to punish unrepentant sin? No, it's actually not punitive as a process at all. It is a process of discovery 
of discovery for the, the professing brother who won't let go of sin. I'd rather have sin than Christ, and so I'm going to remove the person from my life who tried to address it. I'm going to remove it from the two to three who have come as witnesses. I'm going to remove myself from the church's infiltration in my life, telling me how to live my life, and in the end, uh, leave the fellowship altogether. Um, and, and what's on display in that process? The revealing of a hard heart, a recalcitrance against Christ. What's revealed is the pathway toward apostasy. A hard-heartedness that just doesn't want to be soft to the things of the Lord. It's never about the individual sin and some sort of punishment for the sin. Boy, you did something so bad, we just can't have that kind of thing here. No. It's what's revealed in that is a hardness of heart that puts your soul in jeopardy for eternity. That's one of the ways that a false profession is manifested here in the church. The final way, and I don't have it here for you on your list. You should probably write it down, but it's the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 and following. The books are opened. Another book was opened. And those books, plural, contain all the record of all the deeds of all the wicked dead. In every detail, every careless word, every foul motive, every wrong thought, every evil deed. And the evidence is on display. The books have not been cooked. The omniscient God of the universe who has seen every motive has recorded all of that. And it will be inescapable in those moments. Everything will be revealed. Jesus himself said that uh, there is a day coming when every secret will be made known and the things done in secret rooms will be shouted from the rooftops. That other book, the Lamb's Book of Life, that's the book of eternal security. <laughs> Names written from the foundation of the world, those who belong to him, who have been purchased by his blood, never to be removed. And, and those two books are there on purpose <laughs> so that everyone at the great white thr- throne judgment would know that their phony profession, which may have gotten them some ground on earth, gets them nowhere when they face the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other book there, the Lamb's Book of Life, serves as another reminder that their names aren't in that one. The only place there's hope, the only place there's confidence, the only place there's security, which is in Jesus Christ himself. And if you have put yourself in his care, under his lordship, with a sweet, humble, sincere faith, a faith like the child that just says, I believe you, Jesus, and I believe you with my life, then there is a rock-solid security that can never be undone because Jesus is the one that does that work. Let's pray. God, thank you for these sobering truths, these realities. We need, uh, we need them often. Uh, help us just to think rightly uh, about our salvation. God, help us to indiscriminately preach the gospel even this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.